Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, and this is episode number 75. All right. It has been one crazy week. I left Sri Lanka and went to Singapore. That is like completely stepping between two drastically different worlds. Singapore is really a lot more interesting than I ever really imagined that it would be. It's kind of got a fascinating history in that it was established as essentially a trading port by the British, the British East India Company, and went through a process of decolonization, became part of Malaysia, I believe after just two years split from Malaysia, and within a single generation, rapidly industrialized and became one of the the Asian tigers, the industrial economic powerhouses of Southeast Asia. And it's, it's tiny. You could essentially drive from one end of the city state to the other in an hour and a half or less. And I think I, <laughs> I think I walked most of it. Um, you know, it's a city it's completely built up, but they have these in- incredible like man-made gardens. I'm sure you've seen the cool pictures of the, the lit up trees and the cloud forest. It's actually really impressive. Um, it's quite a sight. And the food, man, again, similar kind of to KL, where you have d- this mixture of Malay and Indian and Chinese, and all of that diffusion makes for really good cooking and really good eating. My guest today, Matt Shorvan, I met him on the exact same train and at the exact same moment that I met last episode's guest, Callum Thompson. So the three of us were traveling. I think actually all three of us got off at different stops. Um, But met him, shared some stories, heard a little bit about him, and I think he's got some really fascinating travels and he's done some really cool volunteer work. And it just so happened that he was then in Singapore when I was in Singapore. So we met up in Chinatown. We recorded an episode and we got... He took me around for some, man, awesome, awesome food. Um, What did I eat while I was there? Obviously, chicken rice is like the dish. We got oyster omelets, chokwai chow, curry. Oh, man, what was that? What was that bread? Oh, I can't remember. But we got curried chicken, all sorts of awesome stuff. And I was really interested in a couple of the volunteer scenarios that Matt was in. He had worked in Sri Lanka doing essentially research with elephants with a group that's trying to prevent the ongoing elephant-human conflict that has arisen because of the fact that development has taken place in areas that used to be uh, grazing areas for these elephants. So that was really interesting, and he also did work uh, teaching and helping to do construction on a school in a village in Nepal. So we get into to all that stuff. We talk about our experiences in Sri Lanka. He's a really smart guy. At such a young age, he's got a wealth of experience already, and I think that you can, uh, you can get a lot from this conversation. So I'm psyched about it. Okay, if you can and are able to and want to support this podcast, you can do that on Patreon, patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly, and that goes into furthering the podcast and the travels and the stories, and it keeps this machine running. If you cannot do so, uh, if you cannot support financially, I totally get it. Uh, If you still want to support, though, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast application that you use most often. You can find the link to Patreon in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Matt's Instagram. He's he's a photographer also, and he's going to try to start putting up more of his travel photos pretty soon. So yeah, check that out. Give him some love. And I hope you like this episode.
So you you grew you were born and raised in England. Yeah, I mean my mum's Singaporean and my dad's English. Okay. Um, but my mum came to study in England when she was 16 or something like that. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, I've, I've been in England all my life, yeah. But how long have you been coming to, to Singapore then? Um, yeah, again, like all my life. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> all my extended family are here. So um, I, we, me and my mom come about twice a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, wow. Like once in Christmas, once in summer. Stay for about two weeks. Um, so yeah, overall, I spend a month in Singapore every year. <laughs> It's quite nice. It's quite a small place. Are, are there yeah. th- are there things that like when you come here, are, that you think are must dos? The food, definitely. Yeah. Like um, food courts, hawker centers, they're great because like the people there have been making the the hawkers and the you call them the uncles and aunties mm. um, in the food courts. They've been making sort of if, a small selection of dishes for like. 20, 30 years and just kind of like perfecting them. Um, and so the food's like really good. And at the same time, it's really affordable. It's like, yeah, you get a good meal for meal and a drink for like $5. I mean, chicken um, rice, I guess, is like the most ubiquitous and like well-known yeah, of the that's, dishes. That's the one that's like, it's kind of one of the national dishes and mm. everyone knows it. Um, but yeah, really, there's loads of things you can try. And like every, nearly every kind of Asian food Ah. is like represented in some way in, in each food court or hawker center. I met a guy in Brunei. He actually, we did an episode together, but yeah. he was just saying, um, you have to get this oyster omelet. And yeah, he, he gave me cool. the address and it's literally like, it's that place right outside the door. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I want to check that out. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. E- ethnically, Singapore is mostly made up of, or, or the largest population of people are ethnically Chinese, right? It's pretty diverse because, um, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's about five different ethnic groups of Chinese. And then as well as that, there's Indians and Malays. Mm. Um, and then sort of expats from Europe and the West. Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of because of the history. So like it was, um, it was a kind of small, small sort of trading port that the British sort of turned into a city and then immigrants from kind of all over Asia just started flooding in. Um, yeah, so you've got, you've got tier two Chinese, you've got four, so from China, you've got sort of five, five groups. There's tier two, Hokkien, um, Hakka, Hananese, and another one. Wow. <laughs> and then you've got two groups of um, two groups from India, can't quite remember what they are, and then Malays, um, Westerners. It's it's kind of a cultural melting pot, really. <laughs> Maybe you know um, the, the answer to this, but um, as you said, it was uh, part of the British Empire, right? I think it was like the, the British yeah. East India Company, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then... Uh, there's independence, becomes part of Malaysia, becomes independent again, and is labeled as one of the four Asian tigers, which in my uh, very rough um, biography of that is like the four places that within a single generation industrialized rapidly and became economically really successful. Yeah. Are you familiar with like how or why that happened? Not really. Um, It was all down to the... um, this guy called Lee Kuan Yew, who was, um, who was head of the PAP sort of for, for a long time about, but he, he was in power for about 30, 40 years or something. And yeah, somehow kind of managed to attract a lot of foreign investment. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of what you see around you is kind of down to what he did really. Yeah. Um, and I guess currently, like the the economy is made up of economic services, financial services, yeah, and, uh, universities, and things like yeah. that. Yeah, it's an interesting place, man. It's a <laughs> you know within twelve hours, 
you, you're in Singapore <laughs> and then you're you're here and it's it's like walking in uh, two totally to, different going worlds. Going from Sri Lanka to Singapore is quite weird, wasn't it? Yeah. I found it really weird, like <laughs> stepping off the plane just kind of felt like I was in the future or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly <laughs> like that. Yeah. There's a couple places, this is weird to say, but I felt the same way in Manila or it feels like you're in like Blade Runner for a second because it's all these like <laughs> really built up yeah, buildings and yeah. holograms and lights and things like that. Yeah. Oh, that noise. That's okay. <laughs> so, uh, similar to the last episode that I did with Callum, uh, you, me, and him all, all met at the same time on the train from Ella to Candy. Ella, yeah, yeah. Sorry. What, um, what made you decide to go to Sri Lanka? Um, well, every summer I kind of want to do... I always like to do a bit of kind of independent traveling in somewhere, somewhere sort of more far flung than I'm used to. Um, last year is Nepal. And then this year, I think my mum suggested Sri Lanka. I really? never really, yeah. She, she told me, and she, she kind of told me it's sort of place where there's a bit of everything. Like there's, you know, there's really good sort of cultural sites. Um, it's great beaches, amazing wildlife and scenery. Um, so, so it kind of like has something for everyone yeah and as well as that like it's it's compact it's easy to get around like so you can get from one side of you can get from the the west to the east in a day if you want yeah um which like wouldn't be possible in india <laughs> or nepal or anywhere else really um and yeah i mean i like to do a bit of volunteering when when I travel, because it's it's a really good way to kind of integrate into into a community and kind of see some, um, just see kind of how some of the locals live up close. Um, and so yeah, I looked up a few projects in Sri Lanka and then just found found one that sounded really interesting. Yeah, so I went for it. Yeah, and that's what um, I'm pretty interested in. I want to put a, a pin in Nepal, and I want to come back to that. Sure. Um, but essentially, the, the service work that you found was working at an elephant orphanage, right? No, it was um, not an orphanage. It was, um, oh. it was just, a, it's called the Sri, Lang Sri Lanka Wildlife Conservation Society. And um, they just work on mitigating the effects of the human-elephant conflict in Sri Lanka. So the, the elephants you, I wouldn't say you work with them, but the elephants you observe are, are wild elephants. Oh, wow. Um, what you do is kind of you collect data on them, you help you help maintain electric fences and biological fences. You help um, sort of do things like dung analysis, um, sort of pog mark analysis, sort of tracking their movements and tracking their behaviour, um, and all of this just helps to just helps them kind of collect collect data so that they can they can show the government sort of how best um, to kind of mitigate the human-elephant conflicts. So tracking their physical presence and doing something like dung analysis is to ensure that they are not in places that are heavily populated by people and are in more wild settings? Yeah, it's... Um, so it, it could show the government, like, which... Actually, I should, I should kind of explain. Basically, in Sri Lanka, they don't... Um, rather than fencing elephants in, they they sort of fence the people in instead. Mm. Um, to a certain extent, they also try to fence elephants in quite a lot, and it's been incredibly unsuccessful. Um, but elephants are difficult to deal with because they eat so much food. They eat, or um, well, captive elephants eat 100 kilograms of food a day, Whoa. which is absurd. <laughs> um, and... If you fence them in, then they'll run out of food pretty quickly. Yeah. And they won't have anywhere else to roam. So a lot of them will just end up dying. Um, elephants need to have the freedom to roam from place to place because, I mean, that's how, that's how they work. They eat all the food in one area, um, roam to a new area, eat there, and then sort of end up completing a sort of circuit um, by which time the food in the place they the sort of grassland in the place they started would have grown back. Um, so, I mean, you can, you can either enclose them in a really big area, 
which, I mean, <laughs> the area would have to be really, really big. Like, there's just a huge proportion of the country or something. Or just, um, or just put fences around, around the communities instead, the, the villages and the farms, sort of in that way fencing the people in rather than the elephants. Yeah. Um, fortunately, a new, there's a new government minister who's come in and wants... Um, He's devised a final solution to the human-elephant conflict, which is basically he's going to try and drive all of them into protected areas. Um, and kind of some of the, the ones that stay out, the sort of problematic, aggressive male elephants, he's going to try and sort of capture and put in some sort of quite sadistic elephant prison. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. He's, he's literally doing like the opposite of what... Um, like what what's been successful for yeah. in recent times, um, but yeah, they, that's the idea. You need to you need to fence people in rather than the elephants because you're not going to be able to fence the elephants in. And I think you were we were talking on the train. Still, at times, an elephant will get into a village or a town and yeah. like can literally quite easily knock over the wall of a home if it smells yeah. food or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean. I think every year, um, every year about, I think, two or three hundred elephants die because of the human-elephant conflict. Wow. But at the same time, 125 people die. Um, wow. And that's from, that's from, yeah, like walls being knocked onto them, charging elephants, all sorts of things like that, really, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean... They're, they're really smart animals. Electric fences aren't, aren't you know, going to stop them. Um, they're pretty good, but if they're smart, they can just put a log on. They can realize that they can kind of put a log on top of the fence. Wow. Walk over that. Or if they're aggressive enough, they'll just walk through it. Or if they, a lot of males sort of repeatedly come to the same spot and try and knock it down. Um, that's one of our jobs, actually, is to try and sort of reinforce them after really? elephants tried to knock it down, yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... The elephants can work out a lot of ways to get around, to get around them, yeah. Which is why if you drive an elephant into a protected area um, and try and keep it there, um, a lot of them just end up escaping. Really? They either escape or die, yeah. The uh, obviously, most people would know that Africa has a poaching problem. It does poaching occur in Sri Lanka as well. Well, the poachers, the poachers don't actively try to poach the elephants because very few of them are tusked. Only about six percent of the male population are tusked. Oh, okay. If they if they know there's a tusker in the area, they might try and go after it. Um, but the poachers are, they're looking for things like, you know, they're looking for pelts, meat. So they hunt, um, I think it's stuff like pangolins, leopards, um, deers, a lot of deers. Maybe. Yeah, those um, barking deer. But the elephants, um, the elephants still end up getting, getting harmed sort of inadvertently by, by their traps and stuff like that. And if these poachers, if they go into the jungle at night and then encounter, encounter an elephant, I mean, if the elephant starts attacking them and threatening them, they might have to, um, obviously, they might end up killing it. The, I went to, um, in Udawalave, I went to the elephant transit home. And then I went to Pinawala yeah. because I had seen these pictures that people put on like Instagram and things like that. And it looks so like wild and unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And you get there and you're like, oh, okay. Like you don't it's see what's at, at the front of that picture, which yeah. is like all the hotels in the street and yeah. everything that's right there. Um, but while I was at Pinawala, and maybe you know the answer to this, a guy explained to me that the elephants only have four teeth. And in the wild, since they're eating like a lot of bark and things like that, uh, some of their teeth get worn down and eventually they can't eat. So yeah. that in captivity, they actually live longer? Is that um, true? It's possible, yeah. Yeah. That could make sense, yeah. The elephants, they get six sets of teeth during their lifetime. Oh, wow. Um, 
then yeah, eventually they just get they lose them all and kind of get so old that they can't oh. they can't eat properly. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's pros and cons to being a captive elephant. Yeah, I think in you, you, I mean, you can never know what's what the elephant's actually feeling. You can't sort of get inside the mind of an elephant, but there's sort of evidence to suggest that they're pretty stressed when they're in captivity. Um, like they tend to eat a lot more and drink a lot more. Um, and people think it's, it's sort of their way of like comfort eating mm. um, <laughs> to keep. Um, but... I think for the small number of elephants in captivity in Pinawala, um, you know, they can be sustained pretty well. But if you try to put the whole elephant population of Sri Lanka in captivity, like, there's no way you'd be able to provide them with enough food, enough water. Um, so what the government minister currently is saying is that he's going to put them in captivity and then try and grow loads of grass in the protected areas. Um, but it's been tried before and it, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's <laughs> There's really... no way you can grow enough grass to feed 5,000 elephants. Their typical lifespan kind of mirrors humans, yeah. right? It's like 70, 80 years maybe? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, they've been known to live over 100, but it, yeah, 70, 80 years, yeah. And I saw a lot of elephants being given milk. Is that simply because they're orphaned elephants and there's no mother there that's producing milk? Or do you know anything about that? No, I don't no. know. Okay. That's pretty cool. Elephant orphanages like Pinawala are good because those elephants would have, they wouldn't be able to survive in the wild. I okay. mean, when they're found, so like, it's usually like babies who have lost their mothers. Yeah. Isn't it? And then they've lost the herd. I mean, yeah, those orphanages are good because those elephants would have died if, if it weren't for them. Um, but... Yeah, like trying to, enclosing an entire elephant population is a different matter, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I had seen some of the sort of moody or, or a little more aggressive or cranky elephants um, at, at both places I went, there would be the staff have these, these sticks with like sharp pokers on the end. Um, really? Yeah, it, it was strange. I mean, they, yeah. they clearly yeah. know much more about this than I do. I know nothing <laughs> about it, but... Um, I guess that's a way to sort of condition them to be a little more docile and to like follow the procedures they have for them. Cause they always like march yeah. them in and march them out. Yeah. It, I don't know. It feels a little weird. Like, cause even at Pinawala, like they're chained. Um, oh really? Yeah. Oh, like their, their ankles are chained Yeah. and they sort of, they go for a bath. So they march them from the sanctuary down to the river. And that's the thing that you always see in pictures that looks real wild. Oh, like the tourist like. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. mobbed with tourists yeah. taking pictures. On, it's so, it's like, it feels very unnatural. Yeah. I mean, they're still majestic and beautiful and it's, but yeah, it's, it, I don't know. You f I feel a little conflicted on that sort of the yeah. in industry I mean, part of it. A wild elephant would never let you get that close. Yeah. Uh, they, would, they, like, they would feel really uncomfortable with you being, they'd feel like scared, threatened. Yeah. If like, you, you kind of, got right up to them and tried to bathe them in the wild um yeah i don't know it's it's difficult it's a difficult topic really yeah i was talking with callum about and i don't know if you experienced this at all with the work that you did but the sri lanka needs better uh facilities for recycling and for waste management and things like that mm. And while I was at the, the safari for Udavalave, like I saw a an elephant actually eat a plastic bag, pick up a plastic bag with its yeah. trunk, put it in its mouth, and then it's gone. Didn't spit it out or anything. Yeah, we find um, we find bits of plastic bags in their dung. Really? Yeah. Because um, it's especially with the male elephants, um, the dung, the trash sites in Sri Lanka are largely unprotected. Mm. They're largely just kind of put somewhere in the wild with like no fences around them or anything so if a male elephant if a male elephant's hungry then a lot of the time they will just go up to a trash site and see what they can find and then a lot of them actually learn to eat the kind of tin food um, kind of uneaten tin food and stuff that they find there yeah um, 
And obviously they start taking, it's really bad for them to kind of process tin food. Oh yeah. And, and then obviously the tins and stuff that it comes in is kind of even worse for them. Um, yeah, it's a pretty it's a big issue, yeah. But, How did you find the work? Did you find it was, it was meaningful? You learned a lot? I learned a lot. Um, sometimes I felt like with some of the tasks, there were, um, there were tasks that could probably have been done with less people. So sometimes there was a bit of like waiting around, not really doing anything. Um, but yeah, it's it definitely it's definitely worthwhile. Um, and the money the money you give to the to the organisation um, through sort of the fees that you pay to be there, um, it's it's their main source of income. Oh, okay. So they can't do without. Without volunteers, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to exist. Really, is there um, a way for people to give online or something like that? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, cool. Um, I'll look that up later, and we'll yeah, yeah. we'll share that in the show notes for people. <laughs> Other than the work that you did, yeah, were there any um, highlights in Sri Lanka for you? Highlights. Uh, I like the Tooth Relic Temple, actually. Okay. Did you go to that? Okay, yeah. Actually, I'm really <laughs> glad you said that because I forgot. Because you know the story much better than I do. Um, kind of, yeah. I know a bit of it. <laughs> but but my, man, my experience, I it's, went on a Sunday. Um, yeah, yeah. And they had some kind of ceremony was going on, so it was extra mm. crowded. So I remember you talking to me about like the queue is really long. Yeah. It was mobbed. Like, mobbed. Really? Oh, man. Um, but it's pretty, I mean, it's a really cool experience even to like be in the mob. <laughs> um, like when you first, when you're not even in the temple yet, you're walking through like this really beautifully decorated sort of archway. Yeah, yeah, with the sort of frescoes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't get a whole lot of like FaceTime in front of the actual shrine you're there to see. Yeah, but you kind of just get like waved along you yeah. for a few seconds. But um, it's, it's a cool experience. It's yeah, worth it. Yeah. I thought the the Buddha in Candy was pretty cool too to see that at sunset. Yeah, the um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, but essentially, the the temple of the tooth relic in Candy is purported to house one of Buddha's teeth, right? Yeah. Um. It, so yeah, when the when the Buddha died, it was sounds a bit like it sounds a bit dodgy to me. Someone took yeah. his tooth. <laughs> um, just kind of took it from his body without, maybe he asked, I don't know, probably didn't. Um, <laughs> it was transported to Sri Lanka in some princess's hair. Um, and then it was kind of used to spread Buddhism in Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I guess the, the, the sort of use of these Buddhist relics, you see them all over the world. Um, Seem to have another tooth here. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, right around the corner here, there's a, another purported tooth of the yeah. Yeah. of the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> that one's disputed as well. No one quite knows if it's real or not. Um, but then, and yeah, I mean, it was it was worshipped, and it was sort of passed down the generations, and people believed that whichever ruler, whichever king, um, sort of had it under his custody, had the right to rule. So, um, so I mean, yeah, there were wars over it, and and when the Portuguese invaded, actually, they um, they heard about this and then um, then captured it and burned it. But then it turned out they'd captured a fake one, um, <laughs> and I think um, and yeah, I mean, there's it's 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 so kind of revered in the country as a whole. Like wars have been fought over it. Um, it's there's a lot of kind of mystique and history behind it, really. It's interesting because in like the the age of exploration and empire, yeah, you don't quite. But currently, Portugal's so small, you don't quite think of them as like a global dominating yeah. power. Yeah. But yeah, like they they had a quite extensive trade network and a network of imperialism as well, and it. Sri Lanka is a place I never would have thought also had yeah. influence from Portugal. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. This is a Dutch as well. I never, yeah. never realized kind of how, how far they extended their, they extended themselves. Like it, it's funny. All over Indonesia as well. They came all oh, the yeah. way here. Yeah. 
the um, the a sign of imperialism that you see like all over Southeast Asia is like traffic roundabouts, oh, really? <laughs> like like streets and traffic patterns and things like that are like harken back to imperial days. It's really interesting. Huh. Like all that, and, and obviously oh, the, cool, yeah. the architecture around Galley. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's weird. A lot weird. of the architecture here is, um, it's, it's like the same style of kind of white colonial mm. building, yeah. Yeah, what was I looking at before? I think it was maybe the post office because I wanted to mail some postcards. And I think, I think it's here, right, where the post office is this big, like, Gothic-style um, architecture. I don't know if you've oh, seen it. I've never been. Okay. <laughs> um, so something else I'm curious about is Nepal is a place that I want to go to. Yeah. And we talked about it on the train and you mentioned it here. Uh, prior to going to Sri Lanka, you, like you said, you visited Nepal and you also did some service work there. Yeah. Uh, what was that work? Um, that was, it was like teaching and construction in, um, in this school in the mountains. It was, with, um, it was with a society at my university called Project Nepal. And, um, and yeah, without really knowing much of what I was getting myself into, um, at the start of my first year, I kind of decided to sign myself up for them. Um, I, I didn't really have any notion of, um, of like wanting to kind of get out and explore the world much, but I thought it might be something that I'd be into. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I signed up for them. Then during the year, we had various kind of fundraisers. Uh, it was all pretty low key. And then, and yeah, then I went on the trip and it was, um, yeah, it was a big experience for me. Definitely. Yeah. Construction was, because there had been the earthquake or? No, just construction to expand the school. It oh, was this, um, it was this school called, well, it was this organization called Maya, I think Maya Universe Academy. They have four schools dotted around Nepal. We went to this, this one in Sagamatha region. Oh, cool. Um, it's like near, it's the region where Everest is in. Yeah. Um, it's quite sort of mountainous. We, it was in, it was in this very remote sort of village community in the hills. And um, they had a real need for volunteers there because if you're, if you're an educated teacher in Nepal, then I mean, you don't really want to be living in a tiny village community somewhere in, in the mountains. Obviously, you want to actually try and make a, a career for yourself somewhere in the cities. Yeah. So, uh, so most of their volunteers, most of their teaching staff were volunteers. Um, I didn't have any experience of teaching when I first went there. So I found it quite difficult at first. Um, and then as well as that, they also have kind of construction projects and stuff like that. Remember one thing I was made to do was carry like 40 kilograms of wood up this hill. Whoa. That was really tough. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, a, it was much harder work than, than my volunteering in Sri Lanka. Um, but yeah, it was a really good experience. Was this a, like, how are these communities getting by? Are they farming communities? Yeah, subsistence farming. Just oh, really? Really basic kind of hand-to-mouth. So they're not, um, you know, there's no... not making... They're not tied into any sort of economic network or something like that. They're just growing what they need for themselves. Yeah. Um, not sure about that. I think, I mean, we pretty, we pretty much ate, like, we ate like locals there. And it was just... Really? rice, dal, and potatoes every day. Really? So, yeah, I think it's, they grow their potatoes, grow their rice. They, but, and yeah, pretty much survive on that. Um, if we wanted, if we wanted any meat, any kind of chicken, we'd have to go to trek down to this local village and then bring up this live chicken in a box. Really? And then, yeah, one of the, the local guys would kill it for us and, and then, that would, that would feed, that one chicken would be for everyone. So you'd get, you know, three, two, three pieces of chicken. Wow. Small pieces of chicken like that. That was it, really. Um, we had eggs as well. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not exactly sure if they, they just grow their own food and, food and eat it like that or if they try and sell some of it. But really, I mean, they don't, 
they don't look like they have any kind of disposable income. And they've pretty much been living the same way for centuries. When you go to places like that, it's a real sort of step back in time. Yeah. Um, I mean, because I guess they're so remote that nothing really gets to them. Like, any kind of development that's going on in the cities isn't going to reach them. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite, it was quite so eye-opening, really. How long did you do that work for? Um, that was two and a half weeks or something. Okay. Um, I mean, I, wanted, I would have wanted to stay longer, but like, got to get back to uni or something. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the, actually, what was interesting, a lot of the people, the other volunteers there um, who, weren't, who weren't students, they were staying for some of them like six months. Wow. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, like huge lengths of time up there. Um, in Sri Lanka, it was people were there for sort of two or three weeks. Um, because I think that was, that was kind of like the recommended amount of time. Because like after that, they said, well, you won't really learn anything new. Mm. Um, so yeah, the two experiences were quite different. <laughs> it's funny, man, when I, when I do these episodes, um, I can be quite hypocritical because often I record... If I'm, if I'm doing a solo episode, I'm recording after an experience in a place. Yeah. And so it's like my mindset and my mood at that particular time in that place. And so early on in this trip, I stayed in some places where it was like very hand to mouth and, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, no air con, no fans, no hot yeah. water, things like that. And it's like, yeah, you don't need those things. But after... Um, 22 days in Sri Lanka, like <laughs> coming to Singapore, it's like, oh, wow. Like I have access Actually, to yeah, different food. Yeah, and yeah. Um, did that Nepal experience like, give you a greater appreciation for home? And Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you kind of just realize how lucky you are to be, to be born into, into the family, into the country um, that you were, you were born into and kind of, kind of have the opportunities that you did. Because really these, I mean, the kids in that school in Nepal, they hadn't been to what you and I would, would call a city of any kind. Um, I mean, yeah, like they'd, they went down, I think the headmaster told me he once took some of them down to this local kind of dusty town called Gaigat. Um, we were there because you have to go there before you go to school. Um, there's nothing there. It's like a very small, kind of dusty town, a few, few roads, um, really hot and really uncomfortable. But to them, that was like the big city. That was, that was like going to New York or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's just nuts. And I mean, the good thing about that school is... Um, I mean, it gave them, it was, it was aiming to kind of break the poverty cycle in those, those kind of communities and to give, give the kids some skills that they would need to, um, to kind of be able to leave the village and find careers in, um, in places where there were more opportunities yeah. in the poor. Um, the main thing that, the best thing it taught them was sort of how to speak English, really. Uh, they they could all speak pretty good English because obviously all the volunteers taught them in English um, and they spend a lot of time being being exposed to um, kind of international volunteers. Um, this is going to sound super ignorant, but is there um, a standard Nepalese language or are there different dialects in different regions? Um, I'm pretty sure there's... Yeah, I think there's a Nepali. It's just called Nepali. Okay. Um I think people also speak Tamil because it's oh, okay. quite close to India. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I don't. I don't really know all the different dialects in India that well, but yeah, some of them, some of them are understood in Nepal. Um, but yeah, I mean, you really kind of grasp how um, how kind of fortunate you are to. Yeah, man. Given I mean, the opportunities that you 
we were just you talking have, yeah. about this last episode, that whole like that concept of you don't you don't get to control where you're born and yeah. that sort of dictates a lot uh, yeah. <laughs> in terms of how your the the progress that your life will take. Yeah. It's it, the culture in America right now, as I see it, is weird. There's sort of this dichotomy of, um, and this is maybe even sort of global, there's a, a progressive push where groups that were marginalized uh, are sort of um, demanding equal treatment and, and rights and things like that, which I see is quite a good thing. And then there's like a broad, broader culture in America where like sort of just everyone's complaining about literally everything, like on every side of the political spectrum, yeah. no matter what situation you're in in life, you need to be you, you need to be given this. And I, it's maybe it's the it's the internet generation or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I urge people to just to travel a bit, um, because yeah, like you don't even think of certain things like, and this might sound silly, but like emission standards for cars in some of the places I've been, like. It's hard to walk down the street without just like black smoke coming out of every yeah. automobile that passes. Yeah. Or literally in a lot of places, there are like these sort of like sewage canals that run under the very small yeah. sidewalks on the sides oh, of the streets. Man, yeah. And so, yeah, like, you know, <laughs> e- even like we were just talking about Nagumbo, like there's, there's sewage under your feet, yeah. like on the sidewalks. And it's the accumulation of those small things. Um, can make for a bit of an unpleasant experience. And <laughs> I just urge people to like get out a little bit more and just see like, yeah, how incredibly fortunate you are to be living in certain places. Yeah. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't really complain about your problems as much if you, if you realize how some other people have it in other yeah. parts of the world. Yeah. I really like the notion of spending time traveling, but also spending a, a portion of that time doing some sort of service work to better that community yeah to yourself learn and be shaped by that community yeah. as well yeah do you have any aspirations for the future like all right my next trip i want to go to this location and do this type of work or are you thinking that far ahead possibly i mean the next the next time i um i'd get to travel would be probably next summer um so it's a long way away um but yeah, I've got, I've got a list of places I kind of want to go to. Um, and I mean, these days there's, you can do these kind of projects in loads of different destinations. Yeah. Um, it, it just requires like a quick Google search, um, look at a few different ones. Um, so yeah, I mean, anywhere I want to go, there'll be experiences like this that, um, that I can go on. Uh, part of the selfless part of that too is giving up all those things that we just talked about. Yeah. The modern comforts and things yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, do you see that as a small sacrifice? Does it ever get to a point where you're like, ah, oh, man, like this is starting to be pretty tough. You definitely miss it. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, I remember when I, when I was in Nepal, we craved, we craved all kinds of things. Like mm. it, was, it was mainly the food. Um, kind of like... <laughs> It was always kind of niggling at the back of our minds, like, oh, I really... Just thinking about all the different food we wanted and all the different food we were missing. Um, but at the same time, you have some really great experiences whilst you're there. Um, and kind of when you're having those experiences, you, you just kind of forget about yeah. all the things that are worrying you, like, oh, my, phone, my phone's been out of charge for, for three days. Um, no, haven't had any kind of protein or anything. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how I'd how I'd find doing it for a really long period of time. I'm not sure how I'd really find it. Like whether I would kind of just grow completely used to it, yeah. or it would wear um, you down. <laughs> or yeah, if or if I just wouldn't be able to cope eventually. Um, but. I mean, after, I think initially when you arrive in these places, there's, there's a kind of culture shock. Um, you feel pretty out of place. You can get a bit kind of homesick. You start missing. Um, but I mean, within, within a day or so, it goes away. Really. Yeah. Um, and you just kind of get used to the, 
daily life and daily routine. Um, and you live, you live a pretty kind of, at the time it seems like so comfortable enough life really. Yeah. Um, I think also when you get out and then you, you get all your kind of modern comforts back, you start to think like, wow, how did I, yeah. how did I survive that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, really whilst you're there, it's, um, I mean, especially when you're having a really good time, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter as much really. Yeah. In Sri Lanka, we, um, I mean, in Nepal, we didn't have, our toilet was like this kind of hole in the ground. Yeah. Um, there wasn't any running water, there wasn't any electricity. Um, there was a little bit, we had a solar panel that powered a light and a, one or two sort of charges. Um, so yeah, it was a really kind of frugal existence. In Sri Lanka, it was a bit different. We, we still stayed in a, in a field house that was kind of in the middle of the jungle. Um, yeah, and not exactly a hotel or anything like that. Pretty, pretty basic, but we had, we had running water and we had electricity. Um, so yeah, it was, it really wasn't that bad. Um, one thing I didn't, one thing that made me quite uncomfortable about in Sri Lanka was the, um, cause we were in the middle of the jungle, all these kind of insects and stuff would come in. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> we had a scorpion on my last night. We, we had a scorpion. Um, then in your bathroom, there are some lizards on the wall, spiders, cockroaches. Um, the, so, um, there was a millipede by my bed once. And I don't I, like. I'm not big on creepy crawlies. <laughs> I was pretty creeped out by that. I don't like um, those either. Millipedes are awful. They're yeah. just like, because oh, it's like this so thing could like crawl into my at. ear or something. Yeah, no, I just hate millipedes more than anything. Um, <laughs> I stayed with Callum and Sigariah, and like that location particularly was just swarming with creepy crawlies at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it does get a little tough. It's nice yeah. when you have a net. Um, and you yeah, kind of you, your tuck net it is in. kind of like your your little sort of safe space. Yeah, like you just kind of huddle under there, tuck it under the mattress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every like once in a while, it doesn't doesn't get untucked or yeah. anything like that. Every once in a while, like you won't realize there was a mosquito or something already in there. Yeah, and then yeah, it's, yeah. you hear it buzzing, and you're like, oh no. Actually, what I do is when I'd be reading, I turn my torch on then. All of them would start like buzzing around the light and then I'd like squish them with my book. Ah, oh, um, that's pretty smart. But yeah, I mean, experience like when, um, it's times like that where you kind of think, oh, you know, I kind of want to get out of here. Yeah. Um, kind of looking forward to my, my hotel in two weeks time. Um, but I mean, especially for such a short period of time, like, matter weeks you know you can live without it uh you can put up with it really yeah well listen man like i think again i think it's a really admirable way to go about experiencing the world yeah, yeah. and you know the tourism industry is so big right now if if everybody just did a little bit of something um yeah, be great. in I mean, the places they went to yeah it's for you as well it's i mean for for the local community, there's, it's um, it's kind of arguable how how much good you actually can do in the short period of time you're there. Um, overall, with with your work and the work that other volunteers do, kind of continuing on from you, overall in the long term it does good. But whilst you're just there, you're not going to make a huge impact on the locals' lives. But as an experience for you, it's kind of incredibly enriching yeah and um i guess like the sort of the money you donate for these causes um yeah it really helps <laughs> awesome man um i want to check out that oyster omelet <laughs> if yeah. you want to go out to the street <laughs> i'm hoping yeah. that uh all this clinking and clacking in the background wasn't too much for people. I'll listen to this back and see what we can fix. But um, is there any way 
I mean, do you want people to check out your Facebook or your Instagram or is there any um, email address? Yeah, sure they can. There's not much on my Instagram right now. Um, I sort of, I've got a huge collection of photos that I've taken during my travels and kind of want to try and get into editing and posting them. Um, so yeah, if you give me, I think my name is just, is it just Matt underscore Chauvin? Yeah, so this is what we'll do. People check out the show notes for this. Uh, it's literally on whatever application you're using yeah. and we'll have, we'll have that written out for you. And also check, um, I'm pretty sure, I think it's, I think it's just, I'm pretty sure they, the society has their own Instagram. Oh, okay. It's just, um, I think it's SLWCS. Okay. Um, I'll link to that as well. Yeah, we'll find that out. I'll find it out for you, yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you, brother. Awesome. Cheers, Tim. Okay, that's it, everyone. Episode 75. I guess that's kind of a milestone, right? Like the, the 25s, the zeros and the 25s, the next big one will be 100. Um, yeah. You can check out Matt and his Instagram account via the show notes for this episode. You can check out my Patreon there too. I am in Indonesia, in central Jakarta right now, in an Airbnb, 23 floors up, looking over the city. And I've just booked a couple of episodes that I'm going to do here, so you can expect some more content from Indonesia in the very near future. Thank you to everyone who listens. Really, sincerely, I mean that. Uh, This is... It's been a blast doing these, and um, honestly, sometimes like it, it doesn't even feel real what, what I'm able to do right now, travel the world and meet cool people, record conversations, and blast that out to you and the whole world. So thank you to everybody from the bottom of my heart. I hope you continue to follow along, and as always, please take care of each other. Catch you next time, Voyagers. Voyagers.